Welcome to the Faith Dialogue Podcast with your host, Pastor Ken Baer. Are you ready to swim in the deep end of the Bible pool or climb to the top of Faith Mountain? If so, open the eyes that see, those ears that hear, and a heart that is receptive. Get your cup of coffee and your Bible as we begin. Today we're going to be looking at the very first of the miracles of Jesus. Water into wine at the wedding of Cana. If you have your Bible, you can go ahead and open it up. Uh, turn to the second chapter of the Gospel of John. We're going to be beginning, uh, starting in uh, very, the very first verse, verse 1, uh, in a while. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle John calls these miracles that we're going to be taking a look at, at signs. Uh, that will be significant as we go on and we'll start to unpack this story. If you're present at any of my previous teachings, my previous sermons on the Gospel of John, you may remember that I emphasized that, um, and I did this over and over, that the Gospel of John actually stands alone. It's, it's very unique compared to the other Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, John being the fourth. It stands alone for a number of reasons. Number one, uh, and the other three Gospels are all called Synoptic Gospels. Synoptic starts with the word sin, uh, which actually means together. Uh, these three Gospels are comparable. The first three, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, follow a very similar sequence. Uh, they have many of the same stories, and they often have nearly identical wording. Uh, the Gospel of John is distinct, however. Uh, the indication is that John was already aware that these other Gospels were in existence. They were already being circulated through the Roman Empire. And in writing his account, he's careful. he carefully chose particular stories. So often stories that were completely unique, that are not included in any of the other Gospels. Finally, John's focus was clearly on the divinity of Jesus Christ, the Messiah. In his Gospel, he tells us exactly the purpose for writing the Gospel, and it's also, and he, he writes it very specifically in uh, the Gospel of John in chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. This is what John writes. He says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these, these particular ones are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we'll see, even beginning today, with this very first sign, uh, this first miracle of Jesus of turning water into wine at the wedding of Cana, we'll see that the Apostle John's purpose is, is to provide evidence, evidence that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he tells us that his greater purpose is that we may believe, you and I, we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, and then believing we will have eternal life in his name. So John's Gospel is arranged as a collection of evidences. Evidences concerning the Lord Jesus Christ and the purpose is to move, is, is to clearly prove his divinity. In fact, you can take a look at the testimony of this Gospel um, and a very carefully selected testimony about Jesus. His testimony actually starts in the very first chapter, in the very first verse, uh, just one chapter before, before John 1, 1, and this is what many call the prologue of the Gospel of John. Uh, it's an amazing testimony. This is what John wrote. He said, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him nothing was made that was made. In him was life, 
and the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. Uh, this verbal testimony of John continues. A few verses later, John the Baptist says this. John says, I baptize with water, but there stands one among you who you do not know. It is he who is coming after me that is preferred before me, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to lose. Now, Jesus called John the Baptist the greatest of all the Old Testament prophets. Now, did you get that? Old Testament prophets, John the Baptist? Well, I thought John the Baptist was written about in the New Testament. This is the Gospel of John, Pastor Ken. We're in the New Testament. He's the Old Testament prophet? That's right. Jesus tells us that John was the fulfillment of the prophecy that the prophet Malachi gave. This is what Malachi said. He said, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord, and he will turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the hearts of the children to the fathers. So John the Baptist was the culmination, was the end, was the fulfillment of this prophecy that was given that just prior to the Messiah, Elijah, someone in the, in the spirit of Elijah would come and be able to turn the hearts of the children back to their fathers. So we see the oral testimony of the Apostle John and John the Baptist in chapter, chapter 1. Now so let's go on to chapter 2. In chapter 2, where you are, well, we'll get this recorded event of the wedding at Canaan. We'll see how John is going to move us from just verbal testimony to the actual words of Jesus, which, to the actual works, I'm sorry, the works of Jesus, which he calls signs. In fact, through the rest of the gospel, John will alternate between the words of Christ and the works of Christ. His purpose was to give testimony, to make a case, to prove a point, to change our hearts. So let's take a look at this carefully selected story of John, the very first sign of the first of the signs. Remember I mentioned that John calls these miracles signs. Uh, we'll see that this, this is actually what it, uh, John says at the end of this passage today in verse 11. He says, this beginning of the signs that Jesus did in Canaan of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So why does John call these signs? Why doesn't he just call them miracles? Well, again, remember this is testimony. Testimony is the declaration of a, a witness. If you remember the sermon I, sermons I did on the eyewitness news, we talked about how these apostles were eyewitnesses of Jesus and they could give testimony to the life and the works of Jesus. In the Gospel of John, the Apostle John gives us actually seven signs, seven miracles, all um, of, of what Jesus did that are all testimonies of his deity. These are the seven signs prior to the greatest sign of all, which is Jesus' resurrection from the dead. So here's the list of the seven if you're taking notes. Uh, number one is the one we're doing today, which Jesus is turning water into wine. In, in chapter four, he heals the royal official's son in Capernaum. In chapter five, if you remember at the, at the pool of Bethsaida, he tells the paralyzed man to pick up your mat, your mat and walk. In chapter 6, we have the feeding of the 5,000. In fact, this is the only miracle of Jesus that's recorded in all four of the Gospels, including the Gospel of John. Uh, number 5, Jesus walks on water. Um, that's at the end of uh, chapter 6. And then Jesus heals the man born blind in chapter 9. And then finally, the greatest miracle of Jesus, other than the resurrection, is Jesus raises Lazarus from the dead. And that's in chapter 11 of John.
And, and these are just selected signs. Remember John, John said, uh, John the Apostle said that there were many, many other things that Jesus did that aren't even recorded in this, in this, this book of, that he wrote. He says, therefore, there are many other signs Jesus performed in the presence of the disciples which are not written. Uh, so there's many other things that could be written, but John selected these individually. So go, let's go ahead and get into John chapter 2, beginning with verse 1, and this is what it says. It says, On the third day there, were, there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. So they filled them to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. So they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew, the head waiter called to the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the poorer wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory in his disciples believed in him. So this is the testimony of John. The testimony of what he calls a sign. Evidence that Jesus is more than a man. He'll walk us through the gospel, his, he'll walk us through the gospel and he'll show us clearly that he is the Messiah, that he is actually divine. So we're going to take our time. We'll go through this amazing story line by line, sometimes word by word. It starts off with these words. On the third day there was a wedding in Cana. That's, very, that's first, the very first verse. Now did you see that? It said the third day. What third day? Uh, what does this refer to? Is it the third day after the previous story? Is it the third day of the ministry? Is it the third day of the week? Well, most of us are familiar with weddings. Uh, that's perhaps why the story of the wedding at Cana is so familiar to us and so, uh, so enjoyable to read. Uh, my, when my wife Carol and I were married, uh, we were young and a little unorthodox and we were married on Friday night. Um, it was a little different. It wasn't Saturday, uh, Saturday morning. In fact, truth be told, I had to go to grad school. I had to go to, uh, to registration on the Saturday after we got married. We got married on Friday. Saturday morning, I'm standing in line at grad school trying to get the classes that I had selected. Um, so it was on a Friday, and a, there was a few people, a few of our relatives, a few of our invited guests that had commented that it was difficult to get there on Friday. They were working on Friday, and they wanted to get there before the wine ran out. No, that's this story. I'm just, just kidding about that. But, but it was a Friday. That, that was definitely true. Um, over the years, I've been to a number of weddings. I've officiated a number of weddings, and they're typically, almost without exception, on Saturday. Uh, now, for the Jews, our Jewish friends, Saturday is a day of rest. It's the Sabbath, so they don't, they don't have weddings on Sabbath. It's one of the few days that they're prohibited. They're also prohibited from having way, um, weddings uh, during the feast days. So the feast days and the Sabbaths are locked out, and that leaves Sunday often. In fact, many times Jewish weddings are on Sunday. Sunday is the first day of the week for the Jews, just like it is for us. Saturday would be the Sabbath day. It would also be the seventh day. Uh, 
It becomes actually, now sentence, days for the Jews actually begun at sundown. They, the day doesn't change at 11.59 and all of a sudden it's 12 a.m. the new day. It's, it's sundown. So sundown and sunset, that's the beginning end of a day, the beginning of a new day. Well, did you know that in Jewish life, the third day is actually a very special day. It's a, it's a double blessed day. And this is what the story is referring to. A wedding on the third day, this is not required by Jewish law, but it's a very common practice even to this day and was probably much more common even at the time of Jesus. The days of the week, as you know, are Sunday, Monday, Tuesday. For the Jews, that's day one, day two, and day three. Now, day th day, the day three is Tuesday. Um, Tuesday is actually named for the god of war and the Anglo-Saxon god, uh, which is Tiu. It's called, so it's called Tuesday. Now in Spanish, I speak a little bit of Spanish, and in Spanish, Tuesday is Martus. And Tuesday is named after the, um, the Roman god of war, which is Mars. Now in Hebrew, the days are just numbered one, two, and three. Yom, yom one, day one, day two, and day three. Day three and so on until Saturday, which is the Sabbath. The Sabbath. And the Sabbath is the only word that isn't just named as the day. It's Sabbath, and the Sabbath is actually a word in, in Hebrew that's very close to the Hebrew word for seven. Well, let's not turn this whole sermon into a, a, a lecture on, on the days of the week. Let me just say this, that Tuesday was considered a very special day, a double blessing, as I say, said because as you remember, in the days of creation, every single day that God created, at the end, he would say, um, and said, he would say this phrase, and God saw that it was good. Well, on the third day of creation, he actually says that phrase twice. So the Jewish people believe that if they, they, that Tuesday was a day of a special blessing or a double blessing. So let's get back to the wedding. It says there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there, and both Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding. So if you visit Israel these days, you can actually go find Cana. There's a, it's on the tour. Um, Cana, at the time of Jesus, was, would have been a very, very small village, about nine miles north of Nazareth. Uh, the big town in the south was, of course, Nazareth. And at the time of Jesus, Nazareth had probably 500, maybe a little bit more, 500 people or so. So Cana was actually very small. Cana was probably no more than a few dozen, maybe a hundred people. It was a relatively small town. So as, as important our weddings are to, to, to people, to families, imagine a town of less than a hundred people when one of your, your home children, uh, either the bride or the groom, is, is getting married right there in Cana. Well, that's a, that's a huge event. Um, another interesting tidbit, we know very little about Cana. However, we do know that the Apostle John mentions that Cana was the hometown also of Nathaniel. Now, now Nathaniel was one of the uh, apostles that are mentioned by, uh, by John just before chapter 2. Um, and remember, it was, uh, it was Nathaniel that basically said when he was called um, uh, to come and see the Messiah, um, he says, can anything good come from Nazareth? That was Nathaniel. So that maybe that sheds some light on on why John even why even Nathaniel said that if if Nazareth and Cana are so close maybe they're rival towns could be so when John writes that Mary, the mother of Jesus, was at the wedding along with some of his disciples, we likely find that the disciples that were there were Andrew, Simon, who's Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and of course John were at this event. John tells us all their names because this entire sign, this event, this miracle was for their benefit as well as ours.
So they're all invited to this wedding, and Jesus is the hometown boy. This is a small village. A wedding in a huge, is a huge event, and there's no coincidence that, that it's a wedding. You know, weddings are, are very significant events in the Bible as well. Uh, uh, weddings and marriages are often used as a, have a deeper meaning, uh, a symbolic meaning pointing to the relationship between God and Israel or Christ and the church. For example, in Matthew 20, 20, 22, there's a parable about the wedding party for the son of a king and he sends his servants out to gather people for the wedding. In the Gospel of Matthew, in chapter 25, the five virgins, remember, have their lamps and they all go out and wait for the, for the bridegroom and the five who are not, don't have, aren't prepared, are disowned. Um, in the Gospel of Matthew 24, Jesus speaks of his second coming, and he compares it to the days of Noah, the days before the flood. And he says that the people were enjoying banquets and parties and weddings right up to the time he entered the boat. And then in, in, the, Gospel, um, in the Gospel of Luke, in the 14th chapter, Jesus tells a parable about sitting at the lowest seat. In fact, I just taught on that at our Wednesday Bible study. Um, and then finally, Finally, in the New Testament, in the New Testament, the church is often called the Bride of Christ. You've probably heard that. It's, it's mentioned many, many times in the, uh, all throughout the New Testament. And this can be literally, this will be literally fulfilled uh, in the book of Revelation. It says this, it says, when Jesus returns, there'll be a wedding feast. And in Revelation 19.7, this is what it says. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and let us give honor to him. For the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and his bride has prepared herself. So this is why weddings are so significant, not only significant for the people that are participating, but significant to a greater extent that they point to a, to a deeper reality. So now weddings, uh, weddings at the time of Jesus would last a long time, often as long as, as se seven days. Now the preparation for the wedding actually would take about a year. A year. Um, the plan for the wedding began with a betrothal, an engagement period. Remember we said that, we, we read in the Gospel that, that Joseph and Mary were betrothed to be married. Well, that was much more than our engagements these days. Our engagements these days are not that big of an event. But back in the time of Jesus, these were legally binding covenant uh, contractual agreements um, that the, these two people would be married. Um, the betrothal is in front of a family and witnesses, and it's a legal binding contract that can only be broken by divorce. Now, the couple was legally committed, however, the marriage was not consummated until after the wedding celebration. The very last of the guests left, that's when um, the couple would finally be able to get together. And as I said, it was typically about a year during the engagement period. So what was going on during that year? During that year of engagement, was it so that the, the bride and the groom or the future bride and groom could get to know each other? Well, hardly. In fact, it was almost the opposite. Uh, the husband was typically busy, or the husband-to-be was often very, very busy, often completely separated from the bride and most likely at his father's house building a dwelling, building an attachment to the house. These were extended families. So the young man would go back home to his father's home and he would start adding on, building a dwelling place for he and his bride. He also had the responsibility for the total cost of the wedding. So he had to furnish the house, build the house, furnish the house, and, and get the cost of the wedding, make all the preparations for the wedding. And then when everything was finally done, um, the wedding could begin.
We're told even in the scriptures that the bridegroom would often take some of his male companions and they would travel from the new house where the couple was going to be living to the in-laws where the brides was still living. Um, they would come and take the bride along with the family and all those that were invited and travel back to the hometown and the wedding feast would begin. The wedding would take place and this wedding banquet would begin. This is a great celebration, um, and it's been, again, in the planning stage for a year. Uh, but let's continue the story. So, when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does that have to do with us? My hour has not yet come. His mother then said to the servants, Whatever he says to you, do it. So, let's, let's talk about this, this passage. There's actually a lot going on in, this, in these two or three verses. Remember, Jesus didn't go public about his ministry until he was about 30 years of age. Um, uh, he had lived for 30 years in Nazareth, at home with his mother. He was the oldest son, and every indication is, is that Mary, uh, that Joseph had died, and Mary was now a widow, and Jesus had assumed all the responsibilities for leading the household. As the eldest son, he had assumed these responsibilities and cared for the household, beginning with his, his mother Mary. Now, Jesus was no longer just the boy from Nazareth. However, everything had changed. He had turned 30 years old, the age that David began to serve as king in Jerusalem. 30 years old was also the age that a Levite would become a priest, would begin to serve as priest in the temple after years of education and instruction. So, Jesus' transition into ministry was public. He had gone out and been baptized by John the Baptist. He then calls Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and likely John to follow him and be his disciple. So Jesus is here, is there, with his five disciples along with his mother Mary. And then comes this dilemma. Verse 3, when the wine runs out. Now that's a problem. In fact, it's more than a problem. It's, it's actually a catastrophe. This is a colossal faux pas. This is, this is the biggest event probably of, of, of the year, if not many years. It's a small town. Um, and, and wine is a very important staple um, at, these, at these weddings. Um, if you remember also, if there was anything that the bridegroom had, had done, he had spent a year preparing. And his responsibility was not only prepare the house and the furnishings uh, to be able for his new bride, but also to be able to plan the wedding completely. He had to acquire everything that was necessary. He had to demonstrate his ability to take care of her for the rest of her life. But now the wine was gone. Perhaps there were some more guests than had been planned. Perhaps the party was going on for a few more days than originally had been planned. It didn't matter. This was a huge faux pas. It was a, a blunder. As I said, wine was a staple in the ancient world. Wine was made from grapes and other fruits. It was fermented and normally added to water at all times in order to purify it and to make the water taste a little better. Often the wine, the water was from a stagnant source and it just it didn't taste very well. Wine at weddings was not just, uh, was not just uh, uh, water with a little wine added, but most likely the wine that was served at weddings was a much more robust wine. It was similar to the wine we would drink today. There's even an indication of this story, uh, of that in this story, because at the end of this story, um, the head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, every man serves the good wine first, and then when the people have drunk freely, he serves the poor wine. 
Other translations of the same verse says, uh, when the people are well drunk. Or there's another, another translation that says, after the guests have had too much to drink, you can serve the inferior. So let's turn to the comments uh, that are made by Mary and Jesus. Mary said to Jesus, they have no wine. Now, it's interesting, I did some research. This is the only time in the New Testament that Mary makes any particular request of Jesus. Um, in verse 4, after Mary says to him, they have no wine, Jesus says to her, woman. He says woman. He doesn't say mom or mother, but he says woman. Now, you've probably heard it explained from, there's many, many experts in the Hebrew language, probably that know a lot more about the Hebrew than I do. Uh, they say it was not harsh at all for Jesus to call his mother woman. Uh, they say it's kind of like our English phrase ma'am. Uh, many mothers are referred to as ma'am, especially in the South. Well, it may not be harsh, but it's definitely not intimate. He doesn't say mother or mom. It's courteous, but it's definitely not the same word uh, that he would have used in his household. It is, however, the same word that Jesus used on the cross when he looked down from the cross and looked down his, his mother and he said, woman, behold your son. And then he handed her care to his apostle John. Now, I realize that many other teachers and preachers will emphasize this continuing, endearing relationship between Mary and Jesus and suggest, for example, that the only reason that Jesus even did this miracle was because his mother asked him. And, of course, Jesus does everything that Mary asks of him to do. But when they do this, they actually make two critical errors. First, uh, they don't read the text for what it says very plainly. Uh, the wording is plain. Mary is no longer in a position to act as an authority in Jesus' life. She's no longer in a position to tell him what to do, to make suggestions to him. However, Jesus' words, woman, what does this have to do with us or me, is really not a harsh rebuke. It's more like a, a mild reminder. Um, there's another indication of the same mild reminder. In Luke 11:27. Jesus is speaking and one of the women in the crowd raises her voice and she says, Blessed is the womb that bore you in the breast that you, that you nursed at. And Jesus says, On the contrary, blessed are those who hear the word of God and obey it. You know, Jesus' reply to his mother is, is clear. He's, he's done doing his mother's business. He's now about his father's business. And, and then he says, my hour, has, my hour has not yet come. Now, often it's said that this is an indication that Jesus was not planning on actually doing anything about the wine running out, but his mother convinced him. I, I don't believe the text is telling that, and this is why. Uh, while this is, this is the first time we actually see this statement, my hour has not yet come, it will not be the last. In fact, it's repeated often by Jesus in many different ways. We're going to see in chapter 7 of the Gospel of, God, Gospel of John that Jesus was going to the feast and, and, and um, was going up to the feast and they tried to seize him and he said, no, my hour has not yet come. In John chapter 8 it says, yet no one seized him because his hour had not yet come. And then in chapter 12 of John, the same Gospel we're talking to, the Bible says, the hour had come for the Son of Man to be glorified. You know, I, I put these together and I come to the conclusion that when Jesus is saying, my hour has not yet come, it wasn't in reference to the wine at all. He was actually pointing to a future time when he was going to be going to the cross. That was the hour that Jesus had 
come for. He was, this was a prophetic saying. The whole reason that Jesus had come and the fact that he was going to become the ultimate sacrifice for sins. So let's go on from this dilemma of having no wine to the solution that is provided by Jesus. It's, it's an interesting story. The text says, There were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. So that is, that's as much as a, 180 gallons. That's, that, <laughs> that's going to be a lot of wine. That's enough wine to last for the villages of Cana and Nazareth and, and much of Galilee probably for the entire year. Now these are, these are huge stone water pots. Now they're not meant for drinking. They're actually meant for purification. And that's actually what the text says. They're, they're there for purification. According to the Jewish laws, a lot of things had to be purified. All utensils, clothing, pots, pans, not necessarily be washed, but it was a ceremony of purification that they used water for. Uh, it's not like running things through the dishwasher or the, or the laundry. Uh, it's a ritual, a rite. Notice the text says that they filled them to the brim. Now, I think this is good because it alleviates anybody coming and saying, well, maybe somebody slipped some strong wine into it so that all of them looked like they were wine. But that's not what happened. Um, but look what happens. This sign, this, this, this miracle of turning the water into wine is actually very understated by the Apostle John. Because in verse 8 it says, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. These are the words of Jesus. So they took it to him when the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine and did not know where it had come from, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. The head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then he serves the, per the, the, the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine until now. This beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So this is so understated by John. Uh, there's no indication that Jesus even came close to the water or these stone jars uh, that would have miraculously turned into wine. He, Jesus doesn't breathe over it. He doesn't say, be wine. He, he doesn't do any of these things. He, he just says, go take some to the head waiter. He doesn't lay hands on it. Uh, he just says, take it. And then, boom, the very first miracle, the very first sign. John just says, there it is. The very first sign that Jesus is not just the carpenter's son from Nazareth. Jesus is something much greater. Someone anointed or ordained by God. Anointed. You know, that's actually what the word Christ means. Jesus the Christ. Jesus the anointed one. Uh, the water had become wine and it was obviously apparent because the headwater calls the bridegroom. Now, why did he call the bridegroom? Well, again, remember I said that the Jewish custom was that the bridegroom uh, was responsible for all of the, the wedding. And the wine was his responsibility. And the headwater says, well, head says this, I'm going to read it again. It says, every man serves the good wine first, and then the people have drunk freely. Then he serves the poor wine, but you've kept the good wine until now. So what's he saying? Well, the first part is kind of a truism, and it's kind of true for today. I mean, I remember even when my mom was setting, uh, setting up in our house for a, for a dinner party, and you know the good china was out, and everything was out, and the very best appetizers and, and the drinks, everything was the very, very best. Uh, but then as time went on, you know, what else was in the refrigerator? If people stayed around for a little bit, there was you know, some liver sausage or something that you could serve the guests. But the best always came out first. So that's 
That's kind of a truism. Um, but however, he says, and after the people have drunk freely, and they've had enough after they've had plenty to drink, um, then they serve the poorer wine. Well, this verse is important because it's an indication that this was truly wine, a fermented grape juice. I, I know that there's plenty of religious people that are out there that, uh, that want you to believe that, that the wine that Jesus drank, okay, wasn't fermented. It wouldn't have been alcoholic. Um, but that's not what the scripture teaches. It, it just isn't. Jesus actually commented on his own use of wine and he said this, he says, the Son of Man came eating and drinking and they say he's a glutton and a drunkard a friend of tax collectors and sinners. See, the Bible doesn't prohibit drinking wine. Uh, some churches do, but the Bible never says that. In fact, Paul tells Timothy, he says, Timothy, stop drinking only water and use a little wine instead because of your stomach and your frequent ailments. Uh, if, you, if, if you choose to abstain from alcohol, if, well, that's fine. Uh, that's, a, that's a noble and honorable thing, and it's, and it's fine. In fact, it may be a great blessing to you um, and save you from any embarrassment at some time in the future because overindulgence is not only embarrassing and can land you in jail, but it's also sinful. The fact of the matter is that although alcohol can be abused and often is abused, it's still part of God's good creation, and it's not prohibited in Scripture. You can be a good Christian and still drink wine. Prohibiting drinking any alcohol and teaching that it's a commandment of God found in the Bible is what's called legalism. Actually, legalism in all of its prohibitions does more harm than alcohol does. The Apostle Paul tells us that in the letter of, to the Colossians. In Colossians uh, chapter 2, it's a larger verse, but I want to read this to you. It says this, it says, Since you died with Christ to the elemental spiritual forces of the world, why, as though you still belong to the world, do you submit to its rules? Do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, these rules, which have to do with the things that are destined to perish with use, are based on merely human commands and teachings. Verse 23 says, Such regulations indeed have an appearance of wisdom with their self-imposed worship, their false humility, and their harsh treatment of the body, but they lack any value in restraining sensual indulgence. And the final words of these texts, I'm going to leave it at that, the final words of these texts we chose today uh, goes to the purpose of this sign, this miracle. Verse 11 says, This is the beginning of the signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested His glory, and His disciples believed in Him. This was sign number one. The disciples believed in him. That's what the gospel says. Remember that the Apostle John told us the reason that he wrote the gospel. He said, these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and have eternal life in his name. So let me close with, with this thought. Do you remember that I said weddings and marriages are not only a huge part of ancient Israel, much like they are today, but actually the Bible often uses weddings as a symbol um, of something that's greater, uh, of a deeper spiritual uh, meaning, a metaphor to illustrate the relationship between God and, and man. Well, let me recount some of these for you. In, in, um, in Revelation 19.7, the church is called the Bride of Christ. 
And this is so literally fulfilled that in the book of Revelation, we see that when Jesus returns, there'll be a wedding feast. And the scripture reads, Let us be glad and rejoice, and let us give honor to him, for the time has come for the wedding feast of the Lamb, and the bride has prepared herself. Now see, here's the thing. If you're in Christ, you are a member of the church, the body of Christ. God says that collectively, we all... We all are invited, actually more than just invited, we are the honored guests at this marriage supper of the Lamb. Now, Jesus is acting just like the bridegroom that I told you about. He calls himself a bridegroom a number of times. When people ask about fasting, for example, he says the guests don't fast while the bridegroom is still present. And this betrothal, this, this period of time between the time that the, the man and the woman are betrothed have this covenant relationship and the time that the wedding actually takes place is as a period of time. What happened, what did the bridegroom do during that time? What did the bridegroom do during that time? Well, he would leave, he would go to his father's house and he would prepare a place for his bride building a house and providing all the furnishings for a place to live with his bride. These were extended families and the bridegroom was responsible for not only preparing a house for the bride but also full responsibilities for everything that was needed. And then when everything was ready, the wedding would begin. So we're told also in the scriptures that this this bridegroom would take some of his male friends and they would travel from the new house to the house of the bride, the in-laws, and he would come and take his bride along with the family and all those invited and then travel back to his hometown. Is this starting to sound familiar to you? I mean, have you, have you heard this before? Uh, in John, in John uh, chapter 14, Jesus says this. He says, do not let your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house there are many rooms. If that were not so, would I have told you that I'm going there to prepare a place for you? And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come back and take you to be with me, that you may also be where I am. You know the way to the place I'm going. See, that's my Jesus. And that's why I love this Gospel of John so much. He, he presents these stories, these signs to us that relate so well, not only to what was going on in Israel at the time, but so often they're metaphors of this relationship that we have with, with God. If you need more signs, there's another six in the Gospel of John, and I'm going to go through each one of those six in the next few weeks. They're all signs that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and that in Him you can have life and have it to the full. Verse 30 and 31, I'll close with this. It says, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of His disciples that are not written in this book, but these are written so that you may believe, you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and by believing you may have life in His name. Let me pray. Father God, I want to thank you, Lord, for the opportunity to get together like this. You've been this. listening to Faith Dialogue with Pastor Ken Baer, recorded live at Celebrate Seniors, a ministry of Faith Dialogue. You can listen to or watch all of the recordings at Faith Dialogue by going to www.faithdialogue.org.